Hello and welcome to Bite Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I'm Nick, your host. Today, we're going to be continuing our blame game series on the First World War. So who's to blame for this colossal conflict, this apocalyptic war that pretty much set the stage for the 20th century? Now, we already had an episode making the case that it was Germany's fault, and then uh, an episode that followed immediately after that, saying that it was in fact the fault of the Russian Empire that the war started. Today, I wanted to take a look at the Austro-Hungarian Empire and make the case that it was actually the fault of the Austro-Hungarians that the First World War started in 1914. So, uh, let's take a look at that today on Bite Sized History. Okay, let's kick things off by talking about Austria-Hungary, the Austro-Hungarian Empire in 1914. And wow, what a complicated country it was. So first of all, it was ruled by an emperor um, of the House of Habsburg. And this is a royal house that goes way, way back in European history. Um, At one point, they had holdings all over the place, like in Germany and Netherlands and Spain and stuff like that. But um, by 1914, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was what's called a dual monarchy. Um, So this had been the state of affairs since 1867, and it had an emperor, Franz Joseph. Um, Franz is just like the German version of of Francis, and obviously Joseph is Joseph. So (laughs) there was the Austrian part of the empire and the Hungarian part of the empire. Now, those were kind of like the two major peoples that uh, called the shots in the empire. And uh, it was a dual monarchy because there were two kings that kind of worked together. Um, They, the two kingdoms had a lot of independence and a lot of autonomy. And in fact, the only areas where the Austro-Hungarian Empire was united was um, in terms of the military. And even then it wasn't even really clear um, because you had a Hungarian army and then you had an Austrian army and then you had an imperial or a royal army. So technically it had like three armies, which is just weird. Um, Another imperial uh, dominion was uh, foreign policy. Um, So they kind of cooperated when negotiating with other European powers. Now, other than that, it was a very, I guess the word is is kind of like, it was a very fractured entity. Now, if you look at a map of Austria-Hungary in 1914, the modern countries of the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Austria, Hungary, Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia, Herzegovina, and about half of Romania and parts of Ukraine and Poland uh, and parts of Serbia, those all fell within the borders of Austria-Hungary in 1914. So, hoo boy, a lot of stuff for the emperor to look after. And in fact, there were 12 languages within the empire. So you can only imagine how how difficult it was to pass any kind of laws, to have any kind of cohesive culture or civil society, or even in the armed forces. Like when you have to give orders in, um, 
know, 12 different languages. And in fact, a lot of units that served under Austrian officers, the majority of the officer corps, obviously in the Austrian army, but also in the Royal Army, uh, were, were Austrian Germans. Now, not in the Hungarian army. So conscripts that were Slovaks or Slovenes or whatever, um, oftentimes didn't understand their officers. So they had to have kind of a common set of commands. But anyway, we're getting in the weeds a little bit here. Um, the empire also had two postal systems and did not even have a common um, currency in coinage across. There were different kinds of coins. So it's really this like complicated patchwork. Um, and Franz Josef, the emperor, by the time of the First World War, this guy's getting old. Um, he had had an heir before that died. So the new heir was Franz Ferdinand. And if you know anything, if you've been listening to the series, uh, Franz Ferdinand uh, has kind of a bloody end in Sarajevo. Um, so by the time, by the time 1914 rolls around, um, Austria-Hungary had kind of fallen in the eyes of a lot of Europeans in terms of prestige and power. And there were a lot of people that were worried and paranoid about the future. And this wasn't just ordinary people. There were people at the very highest levels of government that believed that changes need to happen and they couldn't always agree on um, kind of what types of changes. Now, this is going to become a little bit more clear uh, as we get into it. But the point I just wanted to make was uh, kind of imagine this in your mind, 1914, um, like let's say the French Republic, you have a very stable nation state built around a French identity, the French language, French culture. But in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, it wasn't like that at all. Um, it was this multi-ethnic, multi-national, even multi-religious uh, uh, entity that was kind of just being held together by the seams. Like it was just kind of stitched together. So, yeah. I have a great quote here from Samuel R. Williamson Jr. from the International Encyclopedia 1914-1918 that just nicely captures how decision makers at the very top levels of the Austro-Hungarian government felt in 1914. Quote, For three months, from March through mid-June, senior Habsburg officials worked to explore new policies for the future. They wanted to protect the dynasty's existence and the Austro-Hungarian state as defined by the 1867 Compromise, buttress ties with Germany, diminish the Serbian threat, forge a new alignment with Bulgaria, retain Romania in a secret alliance, protect Bosnia-Herzegovina from Serbian machinations, keep a wary eye on their erstwhile Italian ally, sustain the newly created Albanian state, and try to coax Russia into a more benevolent posture." End quote. Oh man, that is a lot of stuff to try to do <laughs> in the spring and summer of 1914. And we're going to see that when Archduke Franz Ferdinand is assassinated, it pretty much pours gasoline on the fire that some of these decision makers are trying to build. And that is that they wanted to punish Serbia 
for their constant agitation in the Balkans. Now, from the same article, uh, quote, The Habsburg decision in July 1914 climaxed nearly two years of constant tension with Serbia and, on occasion, Russia. Four times Vienna seemed on the verge of war." End quote. So we can see here that it's already an atmosphere of friction. Um, both sides are constantly coming into conflict with each other. Now, I'm going to talk about two very key people in the Austro-Hungarian government. Um, that is the chief of the general staff, Konrad uh, von Hötzendorf, and the foreign minister, Count Leopold von Berchtold. Why are these guys important? So, at the top, you got the emperor, Fra um, Franz Joseph, and you've got the chief of the general staff, Hotzendorf, and the foreign minister, Berchtold. And they are what we would call hawks. Now, I mentioned this in an earlier episode. These guys believed that the empire was in decline. They believed that minorities agitating against imperial authority had to be uh, put down. And most importantly, they, they had a grudge against Serbia. They, they really thought that for the empire to continue to survive, that Serbia must be punished, humiliated, uh, hopefully even conquered by the empire. And we're going to see just kind of how they went about doing that in a minute. Dr. Annika Mombauer of the Open University wrote an article called July Crisis 1914 for the International Encyclopedia of the First World War. And I just wanted to hit you with some quotes about how Austria-Hungary was just itching for a fight with Serbia. Quote, Some of the decision makers in Vienna had been keen for a reckoning with Serbia for some time, a move that had always been opposed by the Archduke and considered this a golden opportunity." End quote. It's just crazy to think that people like uh, Count Berchtold and uh, Konrad von Hutzendorf, the Hawks, constantly in their agitation in the pre-war years, um, Hutzendorf especially, like this guy, I saw one source uh, that said that in the few years leading up to the war, he had agitated for war, like urged the emperor to go to war no less than 30 times against uh, various uh, rivals in the region. And I saw another source that said 16 times, and that may have just been against Serbia in particular. But when he was killed, one of the last barriers standing in the way of these this kind of fantasy of punitive war that these people were thinking of had been removed. Um, so now it was kind of like, well, it's kind of, it's just crazy to think the, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand had always kind of urged modernization and kind of accommodation and almost reconciliation with Balkan Slavs and the Serbs in particular. So it's just crazy that he was killed by the people that he was trying to find an accommodation with, thus paving the way for this super aggressive foreign policy from these hawks in the Austro-Hungarian government. Now. Later on, um, she writes in the same article, quote, Just one day after the assassination, Conrad had a confidential meeting with Foreign Minister Count Leopold 
von Berchtold, in which the chief of staff immediately demanded a war against Serbia in response to the crime. Even without any direct evidence, he presumed that Belgrade, the capital of Serbia, had been behind the assassination and demanded a mobilization against Serbia. So you can see this guy's like not even waiting for the investigation, not even waiting for any kind of evidence. It's just like, no, Serbia's behind it. Like, like, let's rock and roll. Let's go. Later on in the same article, this is crazy when I came across this, and I've actually come across this in several different places. Um, in a previous episode, I talked about this 10-point ultimatum that Austria-Hungary issued to Serbia in response to the assassination, uh, where they were like, basically, do this, 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 and that, and in exchange, you know, we can have peace. But pretty much every historian you read, they will tell you that this ultimatum issued to Serbia from Austria-Hungary was written deliberately to be so harsh and so punishing um, that the Serbs would have no choice but to reject it, and thus the two countries would be at war. Now, to the surprise of the world, they actually accepted nine of the ten points, and the only one they rejected was that um, Austro-Hungarian authorities would be able to uh, operate kind of with ultimate freedom within Serbian um sovereign like lands like within the serbian nation the serbian country itself thereby you know essentially de facto voiding their sovereignty which is you know unacceptable if you if you want to try and stay as a sovereign country now this ultimatum was not just written to be unacceptable but the people behind it like the the foreign minister even the timing that it was presented to Serbian authorities was very carefully chosen. So again, according to Dr. Annika Mombauer, this uh, offer was, quote, timed carefully to ensure maximum inconvenience for France and Russia in particular, as the French president was known to be on the way home from St. Petersburg at the time the Austrian demands were handed over, end quote. So by this point, the crisis is accelerating and the French had actually sent a delegation to their ally, the Russian Empire, and they were meeting and discussing in St. Petersburg uh, with the Tsar and the Tsar's officials saying like, hey, what are we going to do about this? Now, the Austrians knew this and they carefully timed their uh, ultimatum to Serbia to coincide with this when the French delegation was actually returning to kind of, you know, cut them off at the ankles uh, to make it a little bit harder for them to react in real time. This ultimatum gets even more crazy because it's like not only was it written to be unacceptable and not only was it presented at a time to make it more difficult for people that would uh, kind of defend Serbia, Russia, and their ally France. But Baron Giesel, this was the um, Austro-Hungarian minister in Belgrade, the Serbian capital, when he presented the ultimatum, he had already been instructed um, to basically not accept anything the Serbs would have said. So again, from the same article, quote, Baron Giesel, the Austro-Hungarian minister in Belgrade, had been charged with issuing the ultimatum and instructed However the Serbs react to the ultimatum, you must break off relations, and it must come to war." End quote. So that just boggles my mind. Like, 
you know, again, the point of this episode is to make the case that Austria-Hungary was actually responsible for the First World War. And I just think there's so many tricky things about this ultimatum that are just nuts. Now, at this point, like at the time of the ultimatum, there still were voices for peace in Europe. And one of them was uh, the foreign secretary of the uh, British government, Sir Edward Grey. Uh, again, Mombauer writes, quote, In Britain, Foreign Secretary Sir Edward Grey took heart from the Serbian reply. Now, remember, that's what I'm saying. They actually replied and accepted nine out of the ten points. And suggested repeatedly that the issue could be resolved at the conference table. But his mediation proposals were only given half-hearted support by Berlin and not taken up by Vienna, end quote. So you can see by this point, there are some you know, people, influential people in Europe that are still trying to say, hey, you know, hold on there. Like, let's see what we can do here. But, uh, you know, they were kind of, the Germans kind of listened to them a little bit, but didn't really take it seriously. And they were just not even, like the Austrians didn't even send a response. So that's, uh, that's just nuts right there. All right, now I'm going to hit you with a couple quotes from some other scholars, academics that kind of further reinforce this idea that Austria-Hungary was actually responsible for starting the war. Now, the first one is Dr. Heather Jones, professor of international history at the London School of Economics and Political Science, when she wrote, quote, Relatively common before 1914, assassinations of royal figures did not normally result in war. But Austria-Hungary's military hawks, principal culprits for the conflict, saw the Sarajevo assassination of the Austro-Hungarian Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife by a Bosnian Serb as an excuse to conquer and destroy Serbia, an unstable neighbor which sought to expand beyond its borders into Austro-Hungarian territories. Serbia, exhausted by the two Balkan wars of 1912-1913, in which it had played a major role, did not want war in 1914, end quote. And let's reinforce this. Coming up next is Professor Gary Sheffield, Professor of War Studies at the University of Wolverhampton. Now he wrote, quote, Vienna seized the opportunity presented by the assassination of the Archduke to attempt to destroy its Balkan rival, Serbia. This was done in the full knowledge that Serbia's protector, Russia, was unlikely to stand by, and this might lead to a general European war." End quote. Ah, interesting stuff. And if you're still not convinced, <laughs> we've got Dr. Catriona Pennell, Senior Lecturer in History at the University of Exeter. And it was written, quote, The ultimatum it issued to Serbia on the 23rd of July was composed in such a way that its possibility of being accepted was near impossible. Serbia's rejection paved the way for Austria-Hungary to declare war on the 28th of July, thus beginning World War I, end quote. So interesting stuff here. Like, I saved that point, that quote for last, because that's another really important point that I wanted to make in this episode, that it was actually Austria, it was actually Austria-Hungary that was the first country to declare war uh, that summer. So it, you know, it wasn't Germany, it wasn't Russia, it wasn't Serbia. Like, 
Belgrade is on a river and the Austro-Hungarians brought some gunboats up and on the 28th of July they started you know lobbing shells into the city um, after this ultimatum thing which you know how serious was the ultimatum really was it just to save face on the international stage uh, you know after that whole thing collapsed they declared war and they started lobbing shells in the city and and you know the rest is history if you've been listening to this series, uh, you know that Russia intervened uh, on the side of Serbia, which triggered Germany to intervene on the side of Austria-Hungary. And Germany had this secret operational plan called the Schlieffen Plan, where they said, if we go to war with Russia, that's going to pull in their ally, France. So we have to preemptively hit France and dun 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 Like it's this whole chain reaction, uh, the, the as Dan Carlin would say, the doomsday machine. Now, that being said, you know, there are historians, scholars, academics, some of them that uh, maybe don't agree as much. There's a uh, professor of history at Harvard University uh, named Niall Ferguson. Now, he had been interviewed in BBC History magazine, um, and the article was Britain should have stayed out of the First World War. And he was quoted as saying, quote, but before we revisit the blame game, it is important to bear in mind that the Austrians were the wronged party in 1914. The heir to their throne had been assassinated, and the terrorists had been sponsored by the intelligence service of Serbia. If you change the names and dates and ask yourself how we would react today if, let's say, the American Vice President Joe Biden was assassinated by a terrorist organization clearly supported by the Iranian government, you see that the German position in 1914 was not entirely unreasonable. Really, the Austrians were the ones in the right, and those who lined up on the side of Serbia were essentially backing the sponsors of terrorism. End quote. Oh, the T word. It's getting real now. So, in Ferguson's opinion, um, Serbia had committed an act of terrorism and, and just totally deserved whatever came to them. Now, I had been saving a lot of this material for a subsequent episode that's going to, you know, eventually come out after this one where we play the blame game with Serbia, which is when I started this series, I said that, in my opinion, the strongest cases that you could make to blame it, like if you had to, on one country more than the others, it's Germany, Russia, Austria, Hungary, and Serbia. Um, it is true that important figures in the Serbian government uh, were definitely connected to the assassination plot. Um, and they were presumably supported with Serbian intelligence and Serbian weapons. I, it's never been entirely proven that the Serbian government themselves were behind it. Uh, but there were people in the Serbian government that were helping the plot, if that makes sense. Like, it wasn't, as far as we know, like, it's never been entirely proven that it was an official government action, but a lot of the people involved were government officials and used their position to kind of further this plot. So, again, uh, this guy, professor of history at Harvard, uh, Niall Ferguson, he's saying, like, no, like, the, the Austro-Hungarians had every right to punish Serbia for what they saw as like, hey, you assassinated our guy. Uh, I find it very, this is from uh, 2014. So, you know, when he talks about Joe Biden, vice president, stuff like that. So uh, interesting stuff, interesting stuff. It, uh, there's a lot to think about here. Um, but I hope that I've given you a lot of material to think about both for and against.
the last thing I wanted to say is you could make the argument, you could play some of the blame game with the uh, Austro-Hungarian emperor himself, Franz Joseph, because there are some historians that have speculated that this guy was, when the war started, was super old and he had always been super conservative. So over the course of the 19th century, um, as nationalism became more and more of a force in Europe, you know, there was no political entity in Europe with with a bigger variety of different ethnic peoples in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And rather than modernize and kind of open the structures of power to these people, um, they were continued to be treated as just voiceless, like subjugated peoples. And that further inflamed these nationalist sentiments. Again, among people like uh, Serbs, Croats, uh, Slovaks, uh, Polish, Italians, like all stuff like that. So there are people who have speculated that if he wasn't so hyper-conservative and just so resistant to any kind of modernization or any kind of change or any kind of restructuring or um, kind of any kind of threat to imperial authority, then... Um, you know, maybe things would have turned out differently. Because when when you have all of these people agitating and you have a lot of resentment growing against the imperial throne, I always picture it kind of like a boiler, like a steam boiler, like the steam just keeps building and building and building. And things like political reforms and inclusion into power structures and stuff like that, sometimes they can act as kind of like a steam valve to, to let off steam. And that's precisely what Archduke Franz Ferdinand uh, in many ways was trying to do when there were hawks in the Austro-Hungarian uh, government that just kept pushing to punish Serbia or to ruin Serbia or to conquer Serbia and he was often a, a moderating influence a kind of uh, kind of a mellowing influence almost and it's it's just crazy but I've already said that I mean you know the fact that he was killed um, just made it easier for these hawks to get their way um, but, you know, the fact remains, like if you had had maybe an emperor that was more open to change uh, or maybe a younger emperor or, you know, or even an emperor from maybe outside that royal line, if somehow that could have happened through the vagaries of fate, maybe things would have been different. All right, well, that's going to do it for us here today on Bite Size History um, in our latest episode on the First World War Blame Game. And I think we made a pretty good argument, uh, we a pretty good case that it was actually Austria-Hungary that bore the greatest responsibility for starting the Great War. We talked about hawks in the government, like Hotzendorf and Berchtold, a uh, hyper-conservative emperor, Franz Joseph, we talked about kind of the issue of this ultimatum that was issued to Serbia by the Austro-Hungarian government. Was it really offered in good faith? Hmm, who knows? Interesting stuff. You know, what do you think? Uh, there's a lot of speculative history going on here, but uh, I hope that I've given you a lot to think about. In any case, this has been Bite Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast and interesting. I was Nick, your host. Listener mail can be sent to bite-sized-history-podcast at gmail.com. Tell your friends, leave a review on iTunes, the whole works. Once again, thank you so, so much for listening. Goodbye.